Welcome back to the Zeitcast. This is Jonathan Martin, and first and foremost, thank you so much for hanging around and being patient. I know I've been a little bit off the grid. I have just lived an awful lot of life in the last little over a month or so, which I'll be saying more about in the coming days. But in the meantime, did just want to thank you for your patience, and uh, it will be hopefully rewarded because in addition to jumping back in with the daily podcast, um, we also have been working on um, kind of updating tiers and stuff like that for patrons. So doing a whole new rollout of all that within the next couple of days, there's a lot that we've been cooking up for you guys. Um, obviously this has been a big commitment and we got a very large number of episodes out in a really short period of time. Um, so we'll, we'll require some rhythm there, but, uh, I, I'm ready to jump back in. And for today in particular, I wanted to share a sermon I gave yesterday at the table. It is Martin Luther King day. And I think of that not just as a holiday in terms of national discourse, but a holy day in context of the church. Because, of course, Dr. King's story is not made possible without the story of the Hebrew Bible, the God of the Exodus, uh, without the story of Jesus explicitly. And um, I guess the, the years I've spent studying and kind of sitting at the feet of some of the great civil rights luminaries of our time have so shaped me. I uh, just felt like it needed a special sermon yesterday. So I hope this speaks to you. I hope it speaks to where you are. And uh, man, I'm eager to catch up on everything else, politics and pop culture and all the other things. So I know there's a lot more to come. Love you guys very much. And so appreciate you hanging around. I hope you enjoy today's episode of the Zycast. I'm feeling emotional this morning for a number of different reasons. One, like, um, I get really emotional about Martin Luther King weekend, actually. Um, There's a reason why this morning we're going to some effort to treat it as kind of a liturgical holiday, because I think it is. Uh, The story of Dr. King is very much part of the church's story, part of the church's witness. And so I think it's important. I think it matters that we honor that witness together. Those of us, uh, I guess would be probably most of us in this room that don't come from a tradition that is uh, Episcopal, Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, and don't have a tradition of saints. I think sometimes we don't quite know what to do with the stories of saints and how to honor them well. But I think it's a it's a time for us to do that. And I'm just feeling super stirred up. So y'all, if y'all can be patient with me, um, I do want to share briefly with you the lectionary text from this morning because they're so good. And then I'll just dive right in. Thank you guys for the worship, by the way, today. That was phenomenal. Um, Isaiah chapter 49, beginning with verse one, listen to me, O coastlands, pay attention, you peoples from far away. And especially, I love thinking about this text in light of Dr. King and his witness. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said... I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. 
for I am honored in the sight of the Lord. My God has become my strength. He says, it is too light. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel? I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and the Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. God says, kings shall see and stand up. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And then from the New Testament, in fact, can y'all indulge me here? It's a gospel reading. Can we stand one more time? Then you get to sit for a few minutes, I promise. But I do love standing for the gospel reading. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 29. John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained on him. We reflected on that text last week. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. No, that's a lot of text. Thanks for bearing with me. Would you pray with me just one more moment? Spirit of the living God, spirit of truth, spirit of life, spirit that breathed on Israel and brought Israel up out of Egypt, spirit that breathed on Jesus of Nazareth and raised him up from the dead, spirit that raised up Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, that same spirit, we welcome that breath. We welcome that presence. We welcome that power. God, we are in a desperate time, and we all come into moments like this bringing our own baggage and our own issues and our own concerns. But we are mindful this morning that we are part of a larger story, and we're part of a larger story as Christians were part of a larger story as people who live in America, and we desperately, desperately need your help, your guidance, your anointing. We need discernment. We just need to hear a word from you today. I need to hear a word from you today. So we just ask you, Spirit of God, speak. 
Your sons and your daughters are listening. In the name of the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. You can grab a seat. Thanks so much. I'm only going to address the gospel text kind of in passing today to say this. John the Baptist, his whole story, his whole legacy, it's really all about one word. The story of John the Baptist is all about witness. He's called to bear witness to Jesus. He's the one who says, I'm not the light. I'm not the guy. But here he is. He's the one who points at Jesus. He's the one who brings glory and attention to Jesus. His whole role is to be a witness. And part of the reason why I think Dr. King in particular, it's important that we honor him among the saints of the church, is precisely because in the same spirit of John the Baptist, he came to bear witness. He came to bear witness. Many followed him like they followed John the Baptist, but ultimately, in following him, they followed Jesus. Because if you know anything at all about the movement, you know it is incomprehensible. Apart from the story of the Exodus, it's incomprehensible. Apart from the story explicitly of Jesus of Nazareth. One of my favorite books, Richard Lisher's book, Preacher King, Martin Luther King and the Word That Moved America, captures this so Beautifully. You don't have a civil rights movement. You don't have Dr. King without the Christian story, without the Exodus story. And I just, it, which feels relevant to me this morning for, um, for so many reasons. I thought about, and I've not told this story in a long time. I haven't thought about this story in a long time. But man, this just, this just came back this weekend. I, let me preface even by saying this. I mean, I feel like everybody loves Dr. King. I mean, you know, not it, to be clear, everybody doesn't love Dr. King. It, not, every, not like, okay, open white supremacist, whatever. But most everybody at least gives a head nod to Dr. King now. At least a, at least a, at least a head nod. Now, he, he, he's been um, kind of adapted to mean different things. Dr. King has become, for a lot of people, sort of a universal symbol of like love and friendship or something, which is kind of means you don't pay any attention to anything he actually said, which by the way is a danger with any saints, is that you build a statue and you're like, well, we've done our job. We honored the man. Now we don't have to listen to anything they actually said to make us uncomfortable. But uh, sorry, I, I lost myself there for a moment. So I did, we certainly do that with Dr. King. Most people are like, oh yeah, Dr. King, Dr. King's great. But from the time I was so young, I was so uniquely captured by the King story. In fact, this is a little embarrassing, but true. In seventh grade, I wrote a poem about Dr. King for our city um, poetry contest, and I want you to know I came in second. That was my first foray into writing, was second place in the city in the Martin Luther King poetry contest. I still know the poem. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> Land in a storm full of fury and hate, stepped out a man who opened a gate to freedom and peace for all mankind. Of seventh grade, don't be too harsh. Uh, oh, gracious, there's a whole thing about strength to love that came from above. It's, you know, anyway, get the idea. <laughs> Get the idea. Felt it, I thought it was decent for a seventh grader, I guess. But I love Dr. King. And, um, and I've been a student very much of the civil rights movement all my adult life, I guess. But it was interesting. For all the places I've been and people I've learned from, up until probably around 2010 or 11, I had never been, I just never spent any time in Memphis. 
Never gone to the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was shot, which is now the Civil Rights Museum. None of that ever happened. So I had this really, um, really strange experience. I was in, now let me, let me see if I can do this justice. So I was pastoring a church in Charlotte then, and I decided that I was going to preach a series on the book of Revelation, which was pretty big, big step for me because like a lot of people, I had sort of avoided Revelation as an adult, but I also knew, I've also spent a lot of time in it. I've spent a ton of time in Revelation. And um, I don't have time to give you, to kind of get into all this today, but I'll just tell you, for those of you who understandably avoid um, Revelation because of, I don't know, Left Behind or <laughs> Jack Van Impey or John Hagee, I don't normally call names, but Hal Lindsey, like any of that stuff. Like, I understand your aversion. But one of the things I've become very passionate about is I love giving the book of Revelation back to, to people, back to regular people, back to the church. Because all those guys with like the charts and graphs, which were taught to us like they were so plain, which is really funny. We were unsure what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount about blessing enemies and turning to the sheep. That was very obscure. You know, like we... <laughs> Let's do some crossword puzzles in Greek and see what this really means. But we read the book of Revelation and we were certain who the Antichrist was. And we knew exactly, changed all the time. Every got a new one every few years. It was Gorbachev, it was Michael Jackson, it became Obama. I mean, like I'm telling you, a lot of people cycled through that. And, and, like, and, we, and, and we knew this, we knew, we just knew, we just knew. We knew which, uh, w when the end of the world was gonna be and Without getting, um, man, I feel like I'm getting into a whole thing now, but there's a certain way of reading the book of Revelation, uh, this kind of dispensational way of reading, where, you know, the seven letters that, uh, I'm sorry, the seven churches, rather, that Revelation is addressed to. This is the fun thing for me about dispensational theology, by the way. Just work with me if you don't know these terms. It does, it's, um, this, this is a big deal. In the, about the mid-1800s, a guy named Darby starts all of this, gets popularized through the Schofield Study Bible. For Pentecostals, we got it through the Dake Study Bible, um, which is, you know, like Schofield plus the Holy Ghost. And, but, but the guy who comes up with this, like, and I mean, like, Schofield was a lawyer. I mean, he was a theologian, didn't know anything about the Bible. He just found order and meaning, and people love to find order in these texts. So you have this very rigid way of reading it. Like, so Revelation, again, it's addressed to seven churches, and this is a fun move. The only things in Revelation that are concrete are the character of John, the man who's exiled on Patmos and has the, the vision of the Revelation, and the seven churches. So they take the only characters that are actual, like real and literal in the book, and turn them into metaphors. So that the first those seven churches represent seven church ages. And then when you get to the end of the seventh church age and uh, the angel says to, uh, or uh, Jesus says to John, come up here, that's representative of the church being called up in rapture. So it's a really wonderful idea. You take the only things in the book that are literal and you turn them into metaphors and then you read all the metaphors literally. Oh, it like I get, I still get mad sometimes when I think about it. So John is a metaphor, the churches are a metaphor, but a dragon and beast and all that, well, that's, it's, that is what it is. I mean, this is God's word you're talking about here, you know. So, so when I decided I was going to preach a whole series on the book of Revelation, like three or four months, it was like some kind of a... Um, it was like a theological kind of coming out because I had never, I had talked about some of the stuff, but I'd never like come right at Revelation to say what I really thought about these things. And um, there's, there's so much I could say about that journey. I promise it's coming back to, 
to Dr. King. I was, um, so it was the week I'm preaching through the book of Revelation. And the text I was supposed to preach the next week was Revelation 11. Now, it's in Revelation 10 that an angel comes and presents John with a little scroll. And the idea of the little scroll, I'm convinced of this, by the way, the little scroll, he opens up the little scroll and he reads it. And the reason I think it's called the the little scroll is because what we get then in Revelation 11 is actually the big story of Revelation, which, don't get me wrong, Revelation used has uh, violent, a lot of war imagery and all that. I'm convinced it's used in subversive ways because people always get mad when I say this. I mean, they literally get mad. Uh, They actually get mad. But I tell people sometimes that Revelation is the most nonviolent book in the Bible. People get very upset at me. Uh, But if you know what you're reading, I'm not even like trying to be clever when I say that. Here's what Revelation is all about. Let me help you here. It's a story told from multiple angles over and over again about how the lamb has overcome the forces of sin, death, and hell by his own sacrifice. That is actually all that Revelation really says. It's the same story that we get in the Gospels. It's the same story that we get in Paul. It's just told from aerial perspective and using the language of metaphor, but it's wildly subversive. So like, yes, you have language we're uncomfortable with in terms of bloodshed, but even that, if you pay attention to what you're reading... Jesus comes out for a battle in Revelation 19, and he's wearing a robe dipped in blood. Well, guess what? It's not the blood of his enemies. His robe has been dipped in his own blood. And funny enough, there's not even actually a battle scene. All that build up to where there's not even really a battle. Because why? Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. What does that mean? God will judge the creation the same way he called it into existence by his word. That's all it's trying to say. That's all it's trying to say. And then it gets turned into like, the, the horror stories for children and all these things. I still, get, I still get mad about it, and I'm still having the nightmares, if I'm honest. So you know, I'm always like, can't you not just do therapy? The, oh, left, the worst, the worst, the worst. Every version of it is the worst. So, but the, y'all, yeah, thank you. The little scroll. So the little scroll, introduced in Revelation 10, but we get into it in Revelation 11 and following. Here's the whole idea of the little scroll, because it sounds cryptic. It talks about these two witnesses, and we spend a lot of time speculating about that. Well, who are the two witnesses? Could it be, maybe it's Malika and Jenna, for all I know. <laughs> maybe it's like, you know, who, like, we always, who, who are the two witnesses? But see, like, man, I, I'm, thank you. For, y'all, are, y'all are doing okay? Because I know I'm getting in deep into stuff here. But see, even the two witnesses in Revelation, I'm convinced if you, it, it, it should be so much more simple than this. The two witnesses are the church. Whenever two or three are gathered, he is present with the two witnesses in Revelation are the church. And the story that we get in Revelation 11, the story of the little scroll, is the big story about how the lamb overcomes through his sacrifice, told. In brief, that's why it's the little scroll. And what we get there is the same thing that happened to the lamb, which is that through the lamb's sacrifice, he overcomes the forces of death, hell, and injustice. The two witnesses have the exact same story. They also are sent in the world. They also are prophesied. They also are martyred and killed. The beast comes and he takes their life, but then they are resurrected. And what that's what happens with Revelation over and over again. In a cyclical way, it's telling us that well, that's, that's said that way exactly. The church overcomes through word of our testimony 
loving not our own lives, even in death. Follow the lamb wherever he goes. Wherever the lamb goes, you follow. You do what the lamb does. The church does what the lamb does. And that's what the revelation is about. The two, the two witnesses, us, we are supposed to follow the witness of Jesus, follow the story of Jesus so that his story becomes our story. That's, that's all that's happening there. And if you're wondering, where, where, where is this going? So I was on a plane. So I'm on a plane, 2010, 2011, a couple of days before I'm supposed to preach on the little scroll and the two witnesses. And I didn't have nearly this much clarity about the two witnesses. Then I had no idea what I was going to say. I was like, I got to preach about the two witnesses and I do not know what to do with this. I had been flying places because I was trying to get my first book signed. And it was several years later before it did get signed. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody cared. I was knocking on doors. I couldn't even get anybody to read a manuscript. And on my way back from a meeting with two publishers in Colorado that went nowhere, there was a storm, and we got rerouted to Memphis. And we had to spend the night. And I thought, well, I'm in Memphis. I'm never in Memphis. I think we really should go to the, to the Civil Rights Museum, to the Lorraine Motel. And I'll never forget what it felt like to walk onto that property that day. Because, you know, and if you don't have this experience, like I'm not imposing this on anybody, but I'm just telling you, I've been to a lot of holy sites. Like I've been to the Middle East kind of a lot. And I've been to the garden tomb. And I've been to, you know, just all the places that you go. And never before or since have I quite had the experience I did that day of walking on site at the Lorraine Motel and immediately being overwhelmed with the holiness of the ground there. Just like like overcome. I mean that in the most Pentecostal charismatic kind of way. (laughs) Like I was just like the electricity of it was like, like I was, I did not even know what to do with this. It felt so holy. I, not that I wouldn't expect God to be there, but I didn't expect to like be like hit in the face with the presence of God the way that was. I mean, it was strong, but we didn't have a lot of time and we had a flight to catch, so we didn't have long. So the idea was we're just going to take a short walk to the museum, see what we can see in a little bit of time, and then we get out. And that day, they, uh, there at the, um, at the Civil Rights Museum, they were also showing a film, and they made a little announcement like about the film. We had a little thing on our ticket. Well, I'd already decided for sure I can't see the film because you know we'll have to, we, we don't have that much time, et cetera, et cetera, in a way that almost never happens to me. I know, I know that I know I heard the Holy Spirit say, go see the film. I mean, it was in that inward way, not out loud, but it was like, go see the film. I mean, like it was arresting. I was like, well, I think we have to go see the film. So before I leave, last thing I did was sit in the little theater and watch a 25-minute movie. I know this is out there. It's, the film is called Witness, as I recall. Documentary is called Witness. And it's about Billy Kyle's. Billy Kyle's is the man who's still alive, pastors, uh, so far as I know, uh, still pastors in North Carolina. But he was the man who was with King when he was shot, had been with him all the night before, was there when he was shot. And man, I just, I watched that little film and something about it just completely undid me. Because I, I imagine you've probably not heard the name of Reverend Billy Kyle's before. If you're deep into civil rights history stuff, you might, but most people don't know who he is because he's not the guy. He's not Jesus. 
he, he was John the Baptist. He, he's known everywhere as the guy who was with King when he got killed. And he, he's probably in his 90s now or something. He spent the rest of his life talking about that. The rest of his life. All he does. Anywhere Billy Kyle speaks. That's why people bring him in. To hear about Dr. King. To hear about the last 24 hours before he died. What it was like to be there. That's all he does. That's all he does. Is just tell the story over and over and over. And he's not a, a hero in the story. I mean, everybody in the movement I think are heroes. But you know what I'm saying. It's not his story. It's Dr. King's story. He, he just happened to be there. And being there... Bearing witness, here's what I saw, here's what I felt, here's what I heard, here's what I experienced. That's his whole life. That's his whole life. He's the guy who was with Martin Luther King. And it was like I, I'm sitting there in that theater when the credits go off and I'm sobbing because all of a sudden I felt like I really understood what's going on in Revelation with the two witnesses and really understood the whole idea of being a witness more than I ever had. You know, I feel like we have so much pressure and we put so much pressure on ourselves to be heroes. And I love the David Bowie song, right? And that's beautiful. But you know, being a hero is actually a little bit above my, my pay grade. I don't know how to be a hero. I don't know how to be heroic. Here's the thing. We're not called to be heroes. We're called to be witnesses. That's what God's looking for, not heroes, witnesses. What have you seen? What have you heard? Are you willing to tell about it? Are you willing to tell, the, as John does, the, the, about the word of life that you handled with your own hands? What have you seen? What have you heard? What have you experienced? Well, there's a lot I haven't seen and heard and experienced. That's all right. But what did you see? What did you hear? What, what, what do you have to tell? That's the whole thing. And that all comes around for me full circle this morning as we're reading about the witness of John the Baptist and thinking about the witness of Dr. King. Because doesn't it simplify things if we understand that all we're called to do is to bear faithful witness? What can you do except tell, tell your story as it's evolving in real time? I hadn't really thought about criminal justice reform, but I saw just mercy. And let me tell you, let me tell you about what I saw. So that, that's, that's all God is asking for. And I think even those moments where it turns into something more dramatic than that, it's still just different scaled versions of being a witness. What does it mean to tell you the truth of your own story? As you've seen God work in the world and as you're seeing God at work now, what does it mean for you to tell that story, for you to speak that truth? And I do want to encourage you, and I promise I'm almost done. Thanks for bearing with me. But you, you, it, your voice is so important in this way. It's so important. Acts talks about how the time is coming when the Spirit of God will fall on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. It's not like the Old Testament where there were only a handful of people who came up from the margins who had a prophetic voice. The idea in the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the whole church so that all God's people get to prophesy. All God's people have a word. All God's people have seen and heard something, have handled something of the word of life that's worth sharing. And especially, I think, in these moments where the world is so complicated, we're trying to figure out what to do. Well, doesn't it help if maybe we just get down the school? What does it mean right here, right now, in this situation? What does it mean to be a witness? What does faithful witness look like? That's all. To bear witness, 
tell the truth as you've seen it, as you've heard it, as you've experienced it. Oh, I love that basically nobody knows Billy Kyle's name. There's no, basically, is the guy who was there with Dr. King and has lived the rest of his life willing to share that story over and over and over again. That's what God is looking for from us. Tell the story, tell the story faithfully. Stand with me if you would. God is not looking for heroes. God is looking for witnesses. And it doesn't require any special qualifications. That's one thing I love. Uh, if you guys want to go ahead and play the software, that'd be great. That's one of the things I love about, I don't know, whether it's the civil rights movement, where it's basically almost any story in Scripture, right? Is the story always that God raises up ordinary people from ordinary places who are just willing to use their own voice, to tell their own truth. They're like, this is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. I don't don't know about y'all, but let me tell you what I saw. That's what God's asking for. So, um, God, I just want to ask this morning, and I feel just such a, heaviness on this. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light, but there is a a weight to this too. Of the people who are under the sound of my voice this morning, all of whom who are called to be your witnesses, all of whom are called to be faithful witnesses. And Lord, we so often don't know what that's supposed to look like. We don't know what that means. We don't know where it's going to take us. Mm. We know something of it because The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, and he's the one who says to us now, come and follow. Oh, God, but we have so many reasons to be afraid of what the cross will require of us. We have so many reasons to be afraid of what sacrifice might be asked of us. God, this morning, instead of being stuck in our fears, we just want to invite you, Holy Spirit, to fill us freshly with your life and with your power that you have not called us to be especially brave, you've not called us to be especially courageous, especially wise, especially anything, just to be available to speak what you've given us to speak, just to be available to say what we have heard and what we have seen, just to be willing to share a story, our story, how we see you at work in the world, a story about Dr. King, a story ultimately about Jesus. Would you fill us freshly with your spirit and power so that we might be your witnesses even to the ends of the earth? We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Let's go to our liturgy. Following your bolts in there, the testimony and scripture of and I love that, guys. Austin and Malik, I love the, the readings going back and forth between Dr. King and the text itself. It's powerful. But you know, part of the reason that we confess our sins like this every week is because, guys, we know, we know, if we're awake at all, if we're conscious at all, we know that we are complicit in the world that we have built, that we have constructed. We know there's so many things all around us that are not in alignment with love. Some of these things we may have chosen, many of them we may not have chosen consciously, 
but we're still part of it. And we still want the world to be made right. So that's why this morning we confess our sins against God and against our neighbor. Can we say this together? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And now, children of God, daughters and sons, receive that you are forgiven, receive that you are whole, receive that you are acceptable in every way, blessed, whole, lacking in nothing. Receive that you are loved, that you are God's beloved sons, God's beloved daughters in whom God is pleased, well pleased. Let's go to our communion liturgy now. In fact, I'll go ahead and ask our servers to come if they could join us. Josh and Sam, could you guys help us serve this one? That'd be so great. Um, and let's just say the liturgy together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Can we say it together? Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let's recite the creed together knowing this is the story of the church that we've been handed. And this is just part of what it means to steward this story, to bear witness to this story. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the prayer that Jesus himself has given us to pray. Oh, what comfort I find in these words this morning once again. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thou will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Could we linger here for just a moment more? Our good friend Brian Zahn gave us a wonderful resource to kind of pray this in an expanded way. And I just feel, I, I've been doing it and I just feel led to just, or I need, need to maybe just let that out this morning. So we just do say, Father, we say, Abba, we say, Papa. 
we say daddy, we say dad. We say spirit, mother. Father, mother, God, who is all in all. Hallowed be, cherished is, reverenced is your name. We love your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your tenderness come. Let your gentleness come. Let your power come. Let your goodness come on earth as it is in heaven. Let the glory that originates in heaven cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And God, give us this day our daily bread. You know our needs. You know our bills. You know the, 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 the things that press on us. Give us what we need today. And lead us not into trial because we have so many already that feel like they're crippling us, but deliver us out of trial. For yours is the power. Yours is the honor. Yours is the glory. We love you. We love to praise you. We love your spirit. We bless you, holy God. Amen. <laughs>